2: got out of the wrong side of the bed this morning. Literally, I climbed across the bed and got out near the window, not the door. I wanted to see if an idiom held water, and what doing this one small thing differently did. The answer was nothing. My day is ticking along pretty much the same as any other, and my mood is no better or worse. I got out of the wrong side of the bed this morning, and I feel fine. Welcome back to the BFI Podcast. I'm Henry Barnes and this episode we're going to hear from someone who does things differently to see what difference the difference makes. Steven Soderbergh. If you don't know Soderbergh's work, it's going to be hard for me to describe it to you. I think it would be hard for him to describe it too. He makes pop films for the art crowd. Arty films that wander somehow into popularity. He's restless and curious. He takes risks. He'll try things. As a result, his best work has terrible moments, but you can find something to love in its worst.
0: Sometimes clients think they want the real you, but at the end of the day they want you to be something else.
2: Now there are loads of filmmakers who make artsy films. The thing I really love about Soderbergh is that he never goes too far that way. He's always, always looking for an audience, hoping that even his weirdest, coldest films can make a mark on the mainstream. Soderbergh was the youngest person to win the Palme d'Or, which he did with Sex, Lies and Videotape in 1989. He won a directing Oscar for Traffic in 2000, He was nominated in the same category for his other film that year, Erin Brockovich.
0: Okay, look, I think we got off on the wrong foot here. That's all you got, lady. Two wrong feet in fucking ugly shoes.
2: His biggest box of his hits are the Ocean's movies, the heist caper Ocean's Eleven, and its sequels Ocean's Twelve and Thirteen. Much smaller, at least in terms of profit, are films like Che, his four-hour, two-part biopic of the revolutionary leader, and Solaris, a Tarkovsky remake that vanished into the vacuum despite the presence of George Clooney in the lead role. There have been a lot of questions about
3: commercial films and non-commercial films and I've never really made that separation in my mind.
2: This, by the way, is Soderbergh talking at the BFI Southbank, then the National Film Theatre, in 2003. He and George Clooney were taking part in a Guardian interview with the BFI's Jeff Andrew around the UK release of Solaris. Certainly
3: when I, when I read Ocean's Eleven, I thought if this is, to my mind, if this is realized the way it should be realized, it will appeal to a lot of people. When you get involved with a film like Solaris, you say, if this film is realized the way it should be realized, it won't appeal to a lot of people. <laughs> and But what are you gonna do? I mean, you have, to, you have to just go at it.
2: The unsure need time to find their way. At work, in film, you don't have time. Time means money, people. But Soderbergh has, again and again, found a way to make uncertainty productive. Here he is talking about making Ocean's Eleven.
3: There are certain directors, Spielberg, David Fincher, John McTiernan, who sort of see things in three dimensions. And I was watching their films and sort of breaking down how they laid sequences out and how they paid attention to, you know, it was lens length, where the eye lines were, when the camera moved, when they cut, how they led your eye from one part of the frame to the next. You know, I was trying to break all that down and watch how they worked, and then recreate it in 10 minutes based on a rehearsal that I'd just seen. So it was kind of uh, stressful, but I didn't know how else to do it. And um, it was, the only, the, the only joy came when you put it together.
2: An interesting career, an interesting life really, is all about balance. Soderbergh's known that from the beginning. After Sex Lies, he fled Hollywood and moved back to Charlottesville, yep, the one that's in the news, where he'd lived as a kid. He made bumpy, fascinating little films like Kafka, a biopic of the novelist, kind of, and King of the Hill, a Depression-era drama, kind of. He was quickly becoming pigeonholed as an indie darling, and he knew it. So he turned again and took on Out of Sight, a crime thriller, kind of, in which Jennifer Lopez's FBI agent and George Clooney's bank robber get closer than professionally necessary. One last score,
3: be tired of some island, is that the idea?
1: Partial to mountains myself, if you like island, we'll an island.
3: There was a very conscious decision on my part to try and climb my way out of the art house ghetto, um, which can be as much of a trap as making this sort of uh, blockbuster films endlessly. And I was I was very aware of the fact that at that point in my career, half the business was off limits to me. And when I read this script, um, I thought, I know how to do this. I really know how to do this. I thought George, w- who was already attached, was the perfect person for this part, and, and that it was a great opportunity for the two of us to sort of show What we were capable of. As a result, during that shoot, I felt under an enormous amount of self-imposed pressure. I was very aware of the fact that if I didn't pull this off, that I was I was in real trouble. When the alarm clock would go off in the morning, my stomach would lurch. You know, I just think, Oh God, (laughs) you know, here we go. But it, it was it was a very very important film for me personally and professionally.
2: And here, drum roll is Clooney. He's talking about what it's like to work with Soderbergh as an actor. This was shortly after Clooney had finished filming his directorial debut, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind.
1: When you're the lead actor, it's your job to make sure that the rest of the actors understand that the director's the captain of the ship by doing whatever they say. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's never a problem with Steven, everybody sort of feels that way. Having now directed something, I can't imagine what he would do because he he would go onto the set with a finder and he would just sit there and sort of, we'd work out the scene every morning and try to figure out how it should play and he would walk around to figure out how he should shoot it from how it should play. And you know, I've, I planned everything out, you know. I'd go, no, you gotta stand there, can't move. And that was really unfair to actors. You know? And Steven's like, well, let's see. And you go, okay, and you'd walk around and Stephen would find a way to, to cover it.
2: Clooney had just starred in Batman and Robin, the awful one, the one with the nipples, when he hooked up with Soderbergh. He credits the director with changing his career.
1: As an actor, you just look for a good part. You're like, oh, well, that's a good part. That'll be interesting. And and the problem is you always think of things as if Stephen might be directing it. And the truth is, it's usually not Stephen directing it, you know, and it'll end up being something... you got to think of things at their worst, not at their best, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, Out of Sight was the first time that I had a say. And I had a say about the, the screenplay, meaning that I wanted to make that film and it was the first good screenplay i'd i'd read where i went that's it and even though it didn't really do well box office wise we sort of you know tanked again on that one um it was a really good film and i I realized from that point on that it was strictly screenplay first that, that mattered and then it became easier
2: i'll stop listing the things i love about Soderbergh soon but here's two last ones First off, he's a worrier, he sweats his shots. So do loads of directors I know, but the difference with Soderbergh is that he knows when to put that impulse on hold. Take his heist movies, for example. They're immaculately choreographed, but feel loose. Often there are moments that feel downright sloppy. His new film, Logan Lucky, swings on one such tiny, scrappy scene. Riley Keough plays Melly, one of the crew of crims who are robbing the cash safe at the Charlotte Motor Speedway. In the scene, she's getting into her car to head to the heist. She takes her keys out of her bag, and for a couple of seconds, no longer, the camera wobbles and writes itself again. Up to this point, Soderbergh has been immaculate, even safe in his shot selection. Then suddenly there's the wobble, the reminder that everything still could go horribly wrong. I've spent too long thinking about this shot. I think, probably, that it's a mistake that Soderbergh liked and left in. If he didn't, it would have been easy for him to tell his cinematographer, Peter Andrews, and his editor, Mary Ann Barnard, to fix it, because they're both him.
3: Peter Andrews um, my the other first my father's first two names he was the one who gave me the uh, cinema bug and he uh, he died very suddenly before out of sight was finished and so he sort of missed this whole run and it was just a way to kind of uh, pay tribute to him Marianne Bernard is my mother's maiden name um, and I realized, I think, sort of late in life because I was, I was closer to my father that, that actually I, I got a lot from my mother. She's a very, she's a very nonlinear personality. And when I was growing up, um, it really I didn't know what to make of it and, and just found it sort of strange. Um, my father was a much more linear personality, much more practical minded, um, and I, I realized, when I sort of went through that Schizopolis Grey's Anatomy phase that led to this group of films that in point of fact there were many aspects to my mother's personality that that were very much a part of me and that were that should be amplified and and explored. Um, She's someone who could never, uh, you could never imagine holding a nine to five job. Um, She was interested in things like parapsychology and psychic surgery at a time when this was not cool. You know, This the, it was not on television, there were, you didn't have crossing over and all that stuff. This was late 60s, early 70s, wife of a college professor at the University of Virginia. I mean, it was considered, she was considered a kook, basically, and um, she just didn't care what other people thought. She really didn't. She just went on her own path and, and really didn't care uh, whether people appreciated it or not. And I realized that I got a lot from her, that I felt the same way about my work, that if you're sitting around worried about what people think, you're going to become paralyzed.
2: Secondly, the moaning. Soderbergh has spent his career complaining about what's wrong with the business of film and a lot of energy trying to do something to fix it. He was one of the first people with his ultra indie film Bubble to try out day and date releasing. He fell hard for digital filmmaking with a run of films including Contagion, Side Effects and Haywire that saw him redesign his colour palette to suit the medium. Now with the release of Logan Lucky, he's attempted to revolutionise film marketing budgets. He built his own distribution company and spent a fraction of the normal budget of a blockbuster campaign on targeted ads to audiences in the Midwest where the film is set. Initial reports suggest the tactic hasn't worked, but Soderbergh argues that this film marks the start of a new methodology, not its perfection.
3: You Logans mustn't be as simple mad
2: as people say. People say that. <laughs> Most famously, he announced fairly quickly, and with not a little ta-da, that he was retiring from filmmaking around eight years ago. The industry, he said, just didn't have a place for him in the films he's interested in anymore. The retirement was hokum, obviously, Logan Lucky is the proof, but Soderbergh rarely tries out anything different, even quitting, without learning something. He's an artist who excels at problem solving. Are the building blocks of the modern film industry too big a problem for him to solve? Somehow, I doubt it. Cheers for listening to me burble on about my favourite director. Look for more less me 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 episodes of the BFI podcast on the BFI SoundCloud page and on Apple Podcasts. Tweet me at Henry H Barnes. Thanks to Sarah Current and Georgia Carossi for helping me dig up the Soderbergh audio, and to the BFI's Collections team for transferring it to something digital. If you want to hear more excellent audio, I'd really recommend a trip to our library on London's South Bank. While you're there, drop in on our Media Tech, newly revamped, for an amazing interactive experience. There's so much ground to cover with Soderbergh and I've only taken a baby step here. Luckily, there's a group of people who are slogging through the whole journey. Carla Donnelly, Maggie Scott and Jesse Scott are the team behind Club Soderbergh, a podcast that's working its way, episode by episode, film by film, through Soderbergh's back catalogue. I love that as a pod idea. They're a fair way in, they're up to traffic so far, and are not connected to the BFI at all, but you should check out their pod all the same. Find them on Apple Podcasts or at Club Soderbergh on Twitter. Our theme music is a track called Throwback Jack, written and performed by Tim Garland and used under license through Audio Network. I'll leave you with a last clip from Steven Soderbergh, this time with a beautiful description of why cinema is still so good at doing what it does. You're
3: walking down the street, let's say, and you're standing on a corner. You're thinking about something that somebody said to you yesterday. You're thinking about the meeting that you've got to go to tomorrow, and you're watching the don't walk, walk sign to see whether or not you can cross the street. All these things are sort of happening simultaneously in your head. Cinema recreates that so well and so easily.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands.